broken line and broken string Broken thread and broken spring Broken alloy and broken head People sleeping in broken bed Ain't no news of diving Ain't no news of joking Everything is broken Broken bottles and broken plates Broken switches and broken gates Hello everyone and welcome to the Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. My name is David Chen, I'm the senior editor at SlashFilm.com, and joining me today, he is the man who played Dr. Edward on the TV series Ghost Whisperer, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today, sir? <laughs> I'm doing good. You, you almost got me with the Dr. Edward, but I got it with Ghost Whisperer. I've played so many doctors. You know, I've, I've had this theory that I've mentioned before a few times is that you can almost always tell the quality of a part by the name of the part. If you have two names, you're in good shape. And in dramas, usually you get one name with your profession in front of it. And in this case, I was Dr. Edwards. You could kind of be sure it was a drama. But this was a kind of uh, – there was a lineage to, to me getting this part. And it all began in a yogurt store, David. It all began in a Penguin yogurt store. Did, didn't Penguin used to have a franchise of yogurt? Uh, I think that's a little before my time, Stephen, but that's, a, that's okay. <laughs> back, back in the old days when the dinosaurs roamed the earth, there was a franchise of Penguin yo- yogurt. And I was standing in line and this man came up to me and he tapped me on the shoulder and said, excuse me, you're Stephen Tobolowsky, the actor, aren't you? And I go, uh, yes, sir. He goes, um, my name is John Gray, and I just saw you in Mississippi Burning, and I really loved it. And I'm a, I'm a director, and I just wanted to tell you I really enjoyed your performance. And I went like, well, thank you, sir. Thank you. And I went home and told Anne and said, I can't believe it. One of the first people in my life actually came up to me and tapped me on the shoulder and said they liked my performance. And it was highly congratulatory. Where later, John Gray, that young lad, uh, got a TV movie to direct and that movie was called The Marla Hansen Story in which case I walked in and there he was sitting on the couch and he said I brought you in because meeting you in the yogurt store and having seen you in Mississippi Burning I thought you would be perfect for this part of the uh, defense attorney in The Marla Hansen Story so I did that show for John a few years later I got a phone call John Gray wanted me to play the serial killer with Steven Seagal in Glimmer Man. John Gray had worked up to being a feature film director and was, in fact, the director of uh, Glimmer Man, introduced me to Steven Seagal, which is a whole different story. I get another call. John Gray has become a creator, moved on from directing, and he was the creator of The Ghost Whisperer. The Ghost Whisperer was such a success that John is like a multi, multi, multi mega, mega millionaire from creating and producing The Ghost Whisperer. And it also gave me a wonderful chance to meet Gen- Jennifer Love Hewitt on that show, who is just the most wonderful person. So, so it sounds so, like, as with many things, uh, this greatness from your life came as a result of yogurt. And. Uh, <laughs> So many things, Dave. Uh, Yogurt is the answer. I agree. That's that's kind of the moral of this story. Uh, but speaking <laughs> of your story, Stephen, 
Uh, this is episode 53 of the Tawaski Files. Wow, can Files. you believe it? I can't believe it, honestly. I literally don't believe it right now. No, but uh, we just recorded episode 52 not too long ago, the Rubicon. And in, yeah. these, in that story, you told of how you were diagnosed with a heart condition and had to go in to the operating room. And when we last left off, uh, it was the night before you were about to be operated on. And I'm sure people who are listening at home and in your cars or wherever were holding their breaths to find out, does Stephen Tobolowsky survive this operation? Because there's no other way they could figure out that information. So know, please, did you survive, uh, Stephen? Tell, tell us. I, well, for those of you who, who last were listening, uh, it was the night before my surgery. Uh, my wife, Anne, and I, we had just turned off the TV. Anne was resting on my shoulder. Death was in the corner of the room. I fell asleep. And now it was 3.40 in the morning and the alarm went off. I had originally set it for 3.30, but at the last minute decided, what the hell? I'm sleeping in. This was the day of my surgery known more specifically in horror films as open-heart surgery. About 30 hours before, my doctor told me to tie up all my loose ends and finish all my unfinished business. About 12 hours later, I realized I didn't have any unfinished business. I never had any. All of my work had been an elaborate excuse to buy a calendar. Yesterday, I called up members of my family. I told them how I was feeling good about everything, very positive, and that I love them. My brother Paul was holding back tears, and he told me that I had been a good brother and that I was going to have a great day, the greatest day of my life, a day I would never forget. He added that he was pretty sure the surgeon was going to have a good day, too. I thought that was a nice addition. Now it was 3.45 a.m. I got out of bed with energy, and I took off my PJs and studiously checked my magic marker lines on my arms and legs, indicating good places for the surgeons to dig for arteries to replace my clogged ones. As I brushed my teeth for some reason, I felt no anxiety at all. Strange. I couldn't figure out why. And then the little bit Paul said that he was sure the surgeon was going to have a good day, too, came back to me. That's when I realized... Today had very little to do with me. It was actually none of my business. It was a day for my doctor. I would be unconscious. If anything terrible happened, I would just never wake up. The brunt would be borne by Anne, my children, and, of course, my life insurance company. I put on my sweatpants and a light sweatshirt. Per the orders of my nurse, I left my wallet and phone on my bedside table. I took off my wedding ring and I put it in a secret place for safekeeping. No rings were allowed. Anne got dressed silently. She got a last-second audition the night before and had to get a change of clothing ready. Her plan of action for the day was to wait several hours at the hospital, then run to the ladies' room and fix up her makeup in case she'd fallen asleep or had been crying, throw on a different set of clothes, dash off to do a Subway sandwich commercial, then come back, park the car, and find out if I was still alive. That was plan A. I find it difficult to describe Anne's face that morning. It was beyond worry, beyond sadness, ready for anything and nothing. She had gone into that taking care of business mode. She got her things together for the unimaginable task of getting through the day. 
We got to the hospital, went to the lobby, where we were instructed to check in. They hired the most polite, soft-spoken man in Southern California for the job. He had the personality that was sort of a combination funeral director, FM DJ. He looked up at me with his soft, baritone voice that made me want to loan him money, and he said, Good day, sir. You're in the right place. May I have your name, please? I automatically began to soften my voice to match his baritone, and I said, Hi, I'm Stephen Tobolowsky. That's T as in Tom, O, B as in boy. Anne interrupted me quietly but urgently. No, no, you're not. I looked at her, not comprehending, and then I remembered, Oh, oh, that's right, no. I'm not Stephen Tobolowsky. I'm H.M. Hughes. The funeral director looked at me with big eyes, like a good martini, he was mildly shaken but not stirred. Excuse me, sir, he said. I whispered, I'm using a phony name for the surgery. My friend Richard suggested I use an alias, and Richard is almost always right in these kind of things. Anne tried to save me from myself. Stephen, the man has other patients. Just give him your name. I apologized and proceeded. My name is Hughes. H.M. Hughes. The man at the desk smiled sweetly. Yes, Mr. Hughes, I have you checked in. Have a seat and a nurse will take you up. I sat down. I was a little embarrassed. An alias is useless if you forget you're using it. H.M. Hughes was a character I played as a child. He wasn't an explorer or a soldier or a prince or a king. He was a bowler. When Paul and my sister Barbie and I would go to Zhang's Bowl Saturday morning before the league started, we'd, we would each adopt a character. Mine was H.M. Hughes. Hughes was the oldest bowler on the professional tour, and he was always injured. Once I got three strikes in a row in the 10th frame to win our game, from that time on, Hughes was known as the king of the comebacks. Uh, side note. I don't want anyone to have the wrong impression that we were good bowlers. Uh, the day I got the three strikes in the 10th, I won with a score of 116. 116. If you know anything about bowling, you know what that means. If you don't, the translation in non-bowling terms is that we were squarely on the backside of awful. I sat down and looked around. It was one of the cleanest, quietest waiting rooms I had ever been in. But then again, it was dawn. They had seats that didn't have permanent butt impressions from generations past. They had magazines that still had new magazine smell. They even had a People magazine that was so new, the celebrities on the cover had been publicly shamed within the last two weeks. But I wasn't interested. They had several television monitors with CNN playing, but the news of the world was utterly unimportant. I sat in the serene void of my thoughts and looked at my fellow early birds. There were about eight people who I figured were actually patients and that they were also staring into space. A few more people walked in and sat down. They didn't seem concerned about checking in with the FM DJ. They picked up magazines. Huh. Not patients, I guess. They were probably the companions. The ones who parked the cars and held your hand. The ones who stood behind you and remembered things you forgot, even if you were using your real name by accident. They were the ones who had to wait. A taxi pulled up outside, and a girl got out with a little overnight bag on wheels. 
She wore a sweatshirt and sweatpants, so I figured she had to be a patient. She came in and whispered to our host. He thumbed through some papers and whispered back to her. She smiled and went to take a seat. As she turned, I saw she had a sweatshirt that had a school logo, Vassar, written on it. She had usurped my position as the youngest patient in the room. She looked like she could only been in her late 20s or early 30s at most. Everyone else was in their 70s or 80s. They hobbled in on walkers, wheelchairs, lugging oxygen tanks. I seemed like Mr. Universe by comparison. The elevator doors at the back of the room opened, and several nurses came out in formation. They were highly organized. They were well rehearsed. They explained we were all going up to the fifth floor. There was another waiting room there. All of our paperwork would be finished, and then we would be called, by name, to go into pre-op. Our companions would stay in the waiting room, where they would be briefed on our progress throughout the day. The careless skill with which they handled us reminded me of a production of Richard II I had seen in London many years ago with Beth. It was bloodless. It had all the sense of a flawless but impersonal performance. We went upstairs to the large waiting room. It felt oppressive. There were windows everywhere, but it was still dark outside. We were called up one by one to speak to a secretary. I waited over an hour. I was afraid if we waited any longer, my surgeon would be called in for jury duty. Finally, a woman came out from behind a screen, faced the room, and said, Mr. Hughes, Mr. H.M. Hughes. Anne elbowed me. I got up. The woman handed me a gigantic contract that stipulated I would never sue the hospital for any reason. And then she asked me if I had an advanced directive. I told her, no, 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 stop it with the advanced directive. Good surgery is like good sex. You need a little sweet talk beforehand. I told her my wife would handle any decisions. Hopefully I had accrued enough goodwill over the years for her not to be too hasty in pulling the plug. I whispered to the woman, uh, You know I'm not Mr. Hughes, right? She said, Yes, Mr. Hughes. I said, Good. I, I just got worried that if you really had a Mr. Hughes that, say, had to have his leg amputated, someone could make a mistake. She said, Don't worry. This is the cardio surgery floor, and I don't see any other Mr. Hughes on the books. The doctors know you're getting open heart surgery. I thanked her. I went back out and waited. I whispered to Anne that I told the woman I really wasn't Mr. Hughes in case they had a real Mr. Hughes. Anne just patted my hand. I looked around the room. You could always spot the patients. No wedding rings. They sat calmly staring into space. The person with them was usually a mess. They were exploding with worry, with fury, with terror. They were pacing. They were on the phone. They were making trips to the coffee machine. And then there was our girl from Vassar. She was sitting in her chair cross-legged like she was doing some kind of yoga. She was calmly staring straight ahead. As far as I could tell, she had no companion. She was the only one of us that was alone. Then the moment came. The double doors opened for the operating rooms. A nurse marched in and said they would call out our names and ask us to form a single line. Names were called. Then I heard, Mr. Hughes? I looked at Anne. Suddenly my heart was in my throat. She smiled. Her worried eyes filled with tears. She kissed me. I got up and took my place in line. 
Anne walked and stood beside me. The nurse told her this is as far as she could go. She would get briefings throughout the day as to how the surgery was going. I put my arm around her and told her not to worry. I'd see her on the other side. Anne slapped my arm and said, Don't say that. I said, What? She said, Don't say the other side. I said, Oh, wow. Ooh, I didn't mean it that way. I I meant the other side of the recovery room. Sorry. The roll call was completed. It was time to be prepared for surgery. I kissed Anne quickly one more time. I waved to her, and then I was gone. The door shut behind me. I was taken into a room with five other patients and the girl from Vassar. We were ushered into curtain cubicles where we were told to undress and put on our clothes in a pile. I put on the flimsy hospital gown with the opening in the back as they instructed. I lay on the hospital bed. Three nurses peeked in the curtain and started giggling. So, Mr. Hughes, how's it going on glee? (laughs) One tough-looking nurse with jet black hair and a dyed white streak looked back at the others and said, You couldn't pay me to watch that show. She looked at me with a smile that was way too evil and said, I'm a Deadwood fan. They came on either side of me and started asking fan questions while they began poking my arms and legs for sizable veins for an IV. The Deadwood nurse held up a razor and said, I'm going to shave your chest. You ever been shaved before? I said once. Once I shaved my legs to do a play. The Glee nurses started giggling. Were you playing a transvestite? No, I said. I was playing an Incan Indian. I guess they shaved their legs, too. I was in a play. I I did it in college. I didn't know what I was doing, and I used an electric razor on my legs. There was blood everywhere. It would have been easier if I just used a broken bottle. The Deadwood nurse smiled and said, Amateurs? Well, if it's one thing we know, it's how to shave you. That or take your blood. One of the Glee nurses said, There. I said, There what? She said, We have your IV going. I said, You're kidding. I didn't even feel it. The Deadwood nurse said, No, sweetheart. One thing we know is how to give a good shot. At which point the Glee nurse handed Deadwood a syringe filled with clear liquid. Deadwood started to stick the needle into my IV line. I said, wait, 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 what are you doing? What is that? Deadwood smiled and winked and said, it's a little thing we girls like to call party time. The Glee nurse said, it's a cocktail that'll take all your cares away. No pain, no worry. Deadwood added, we usually save it for Friday after work, don't we girls? And they all started giggling. No, no, just kidding. Or maybe not. Good luck, sweetheart. The nurses laughed and left me and went on to minister in the next cubicle. They pulled back the drapes, and there was the Vassar girl talking to a man who, if he wasn't a doctor, certainly was dressed like one. That's when I felt party time begin to descend on my brain. The first thing I sensed was something like icy fingers inside my head that made me a little foggy, a little sleepy. I have to say the medicine did not make me any less nervous and I certainly didn't feel euphoric. At best, it made me feel curiously uninvolved. The anesthesiologist and his assistant came into the room. He appeared to be a kind man, which I appreciated, and looked about the same age as my son, which I'm not sure I fully appreciated. He smiled broadly and said, Good morning, Mr. Hughes. Uh, good morning, I said. Are you feeling all right? 
I said, well, it's all right as can be expected with tubes sticking out of me. I wish you could have seen me yesterday. I wasn't worried at all, but now I have to say if I wasn't so drugged and incapable of finding my clothes, I'd probably run screaming out of this place. The doctor smiled warmly and said, it's completely understandable. But just know this, you have an excellent surgeon, and if I could share something with you, I just saw him, and he was singing. Singing, I said. That's right. I said, was he singing Top 40 or show tunes? The anesthesiologist thought about it and shook his head. I can't say, but he was smiling. I considered this. Yeah, probably show tunes. That's a good sign, I think. The anesthesiologist whispered, I would say it's a very good sign. The doctor leaned in and looked over me. I looked into this young man's eyes, and it dawned on me this wasn't a social call. They were probably about to put me under for the operation. And this fellow and his assistant could possibly be the last person I ever see on earth. I realized that most of us probably spend our last moments with a stranger. That's why it pays to be nice to everyone. You never know who will be sitting beside you on the wet pavement. He said quietly, We're going to use several drugs on you today that will put you to sleep. You will be completely out for the entire time. I asked, How long will it take? He answered, Anywhere from four to six hours. I said, Wow, that's long enough to watch Return of the King Director's Cut. The young man nodded, I know. It takes a while, but I will be there monitoring you and make sure everything happens smoothly. I will be there to bring you back. And remember one thing. Yes, sir. He said, when you wake up, you'll still probably be on a ventilator. Our machine will be breathing for you, and you'll have a tube down your throat. Usually this is only for 20 minutes or so, just until we're sure you're awake enough to breathe on your own. Don't try to speak. You may want to, but you won't be able to. Don't try. Yes, sir. Without consulting his watch, the doctor said, It's just about time. I stopped him. Uh, Just one thing. Yes. I said, My wife's name is Anne. She'll be waiting. He said, Don't worry. We'll talk to her. We'll keep her in the loop. Thank you, I said. He looked at his assistant who injected something into my IV. I felt the bed start to move out of my cubicle. The last words I remember from my anesthesiologist were, Don't worry. We'll do everything for you. Then, blackness. I guess they were right. They did everything for me. Except dream. I had none. Imagine the passage of no time, and then... I sensed light on my eyelids, and I heard voices. It was Anne. And Julie! Julie Haggerty was standing near me. And Richard! Richard was there, too. I heard whispers. And then the first words I could make out were Richard saying, I I, I think I saw his face move. Look at his eyelids. I was trying to open my eyes, but I couldn't. They were way too heavy. My brain, however, was wide awake. I wanted to say, hey, I'm here. I made it. I'm all right, everybody. I'm all right. But then I remembered the warning from my anesthesiologist that I would have a tube down my throat and I wouldn't be able to speak. And I realized I did and I couldn't, so I didn't. Finally, I opened an eye and I saw Richard and Julie and Anne standing at the foot of my bed in the ICU. I knew I couldn't talk, but I wanted to give them the classic thumbs up 
to show them that the inner man was alive and well, and that was when I realized that the outer man still couldn't move. The thumbs would have to wait. I looked above Anne's head. There was a digital clock with red numbers that said, Two o'clock. Huh. Two p.m. My mind quickly tried to do the math as to how long I was out. I arrived at 5 a.m. I waited till around 6.30. Then I got my chest shaved by Deadwood. That all happened pretty quickly. Okay, then I have to figure out. Oh, can't do it. I'll have to wait till later. I looked back to Anne and tried to speak. Oh, damn it, I forgot. I couldn't. The tube. I began to choke. I felt adrenaline pump through my body and the start of a panic response, except I couldn't move. I couldn't breathe. I tried to gulp in air, but I couldn't. The vast array of machines that were around me started to beep out various awful-sounding alarms that made me panic even more. A nurse sat down beside me and said, Don't try to move. Don't bite on the tube. Relax. No, 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 Mr. Hughes. You're still biting. Relax. With the sound of bells and buzzers screaming all around me, I remember having some sort of dream. And it was a pleasant dream. I was traveling somewhere. People were talking to me. And then I woke up and the sound of buzzers were still going on and Anne and Richard and Julie and the clock above Anne's head said, wait a minute, that's impossible. The clock still said 2 p.m. And then it changed to 2.01. Oh, God. Time had stopped. I relaxed my throat. I felt a tiny rivulet of air coming into my lungs. The buzzers and beepers went back to normal blips and whistles. The nurse whispered, That's good, Mr. Hughes. Don't chew on the tube. We can't take it out yet. You need to wake up more. Just relax. I looked up at the clock. It said 2.02. I tried to take a breath. I felt my throat start to tighten once more, and I began to choke. The nurse whispered to me again. I tried to relax, anything to keep the sirens from coming back on. The anesthesiologist came in. He was still smiling. He said, your blood pressure is too low to take the breathing tube out yet. It usually takes a few minutes. Just relax as much as you can. I know you're feeling like you're choking, but you're not. We'll get you out of this as soon as it's safe. I looked at the clock. It still said 2.02. From somewhere, a sort of clarity came into my head, and I realized I was at war. To stay alive, I had to stay calm. I had to not try to breathe. My brain was screaming that I was choking, that I needed to get to the surface of whatever ocean I had fallen in, but I had to not, not do anything, and most importantly, not mind it. I focused all my energy and focused on a little place in my mind I could exist. If I concentrated, I could stay in that little place and hold my instincts to breathe or to swallow in check. It required every bit of willpower I had, every bit of resolve. I looked at the clock. It said 2.04. Then it changed to 2.05. Okay, okay, I can make it for 20 minutes. 20 minutes wasn't that long. I fell asleep again. I woke up and I remembered my little place. I went there. I was calm. I opened my eyes. It was 2.10. I lay in complete agony. I have to say it was an exquisite agony. It enveloped my entire being. It went on for miles. It had gardens. It had a pool. There may have even been stables. 
Unfortunately, the servants had taken the day off and left me completely alone. My mind was awake, but I was unable to move, unable to breathe, but it didn't matter. There is a level of complaint in which you need to talk to the management, and then there's a level of complaint in which you need to change schools or change jobs or even change cities. And then there's a level of complaint that can only be answered with silence. I knew my current physical predicament was just a distraction, and I was determined not to pay attention. I had one weapon at my command, but it was a powerful one. I had no options. For good or for bad, there's nothing as freeing as having only one choice, one clear path. I had to wait out time. I saw my death sitting patiently beside me. But in my soul, I was smiling because I knew I was going to win. They were messing with the wrong guy. You see, I was a character actor. I was used to waiting forever and having parts with no lines. At least this time, I had a name, Mr. Hughes. And from my experience bowling on a Saturday morning, I knew Hughes was the king of the comebacks. Just hit the ground Broken cutters and broken saws Broken buckles and broken laws Broken bodies and broken bones Broken boys broken bones Take a deep breath, feel like you were choking Everything is broken The clock said 2.16 I could do this. I stayed in my little spot in my soul. I got strength from the certainty that this particular trial would be over soon. Then came 2.20. It came and went. No one was coming into the room to remove my breathing tube. I couldn't really mount a significant protest in that I still apparently was paralyzed. I focused on my thumbs. Maybe if I could get them to move, I could give the nurse the thumbs-down signal to let her know that I was unhappy. It was 2.23. I felt panic rising inside me again, and despite being hooked up to a ventilator, I had the sense of suffocating. I couldn't inhale or swallow. I couldn't move or make a sound. The source of my strength had been my certainty. I was certain my situation was temporary, 20 minutes tops. This was confirmed by people with degrees in healthcare who wore lab coats. It's easy to attach inner strength to a sure thing. But what happens to your strength when your sure thing isn't so sure? Certainty is almost a creation of faith, not fact. It's an illusion in which we're happy to confuse our expectations with reality. I was lying propped up on the hospital bed, attached to so many different monitors it must have looked like I fell asleep in a radio shack. Amid the beeps and the buzzes and the dings, I was frantically searching for a new anchor, an anchor built out of something stronger than the certainty that this would be over soon. I cast my net out for something I could count on. Despite my dire situation, I did not catch God, as one might have expected. But I did catch the next best thing, the memory of something true. 
When I broke my neck in Iceland, I survived by a miracle of bad health. Two weeks before the accident, I had been diagnosed with advanced arthritis of the neck. I thought it was my curse. As it turned out, when I was thrown from the horse on the side of the mountain, it was my arthritic vertebra, unnaturally twisted and fused, that acted like armor and protected my spinal cord. I learned a lesson during the broken neck adventure. Never trust a catastrophe. It has a way of turning into a miracle when you least expect it. This was the thought I grabbed onto in the ICU. Perhaps this trial was about to teach me something new. And then I remembered my brother's words. Stevie, you're going to have a great day, an important day, a day you'll never forget. Maybe the greatness of this day was waiting for me on the other end of these unbearable minutes. All I had to do was wait for the breathing tube to be removed to receive some kind of enlightenment. I had replaced my certainty in the shortness of the ordeal with my certainty that however long it took, I was going to learn something important. In a way, I made my ordeal my accomplice. Three hours passed as the first hour did. I stayed in my little place where I could live until I finally heard footsteps come into my room. I could tell from the rubber soles it had to be a nurse. I opened my eyes. My nurse was a tiny Asian woman. She said, We could take this tube out now. On the count of three, breathe out hard and cough. I did. The tube came out. I gasped for the first time with my altered heart. My lungs ached. I could breathe. I could talk. I wasn't in pain. There was no pain at all. That was an unexpected blessing. And my first words were, Water. Please, water. The nurse laughed and said, They always want water. Okay, I can give you a little bit. She poured me a cup of ice water, and that's when I realized I still couldn't move. I whispered to her, I can't hold it. Could you just put the cup to my mouth? Sure. She brought the cup to my lips. I was so thirsty, I could smell the water. The first wet chill hit my tongue, and I was transported. It was so delicious. I never tasted anything so delightful in my life. I didn't know if my Aunt Esther in Pennsylvania was telling me the truth about butter pecan ice cream, but now I was certain that they did have ice water in heaven. The nurse laughed. They're always so thirsty after surgery. Some of them even want to buy the water pitchers from us because they think it makes the water taste better. I don't think the pitchers have anything to do with it. Food tastes good when you're hungry. Water tastes good when you're thirsty. I'm leaving now. Jane will watch you tonight. Bye-bye. I never knew this woman's name, but I'll always remember her as the nurse who gave me water. Jane arrived. She was also a very short woman, probably in her 50s. She appeared to be Asian as well. She wore tennis shoes like everyone else, but there was something different about her. And then I figured out, she wasn't, she wasn't wearing a nurse's outfit. She wore a blue sweater, knit pants. She looked like she just had come from home. Jane got my respect right away when she asked if I needed any pain medicine. I told her, give me everything you got. Don't hold back. You see, before I went into the hospital, an old high school friend of Anne had this surgery and told me the only thing I had to remember was stay ahead of the pain. It was great advice, and it served me well. Jane told me she would give me pain medicine, 
but I had to take deep breaths for her. She said shallow breathing was one of the biggest causes of complication after the surgery. I tried to breathe deeper, but I felt knife-like jabs in my side. Side note, this was probably because my sternum had been cut into with a buzzsaw. I made a counter-bargain with her. I said, Jane, if I'm able to give you three deep breaths, let me have a drink of water. Jane said, five. Five good breaths, I give you a drink. I said, four. She said, five. Take it or leave it. I took it. I tried to take five deep breaths through the pain. Jane stood by my side and whispered encouragement. Then she fed me water. It was heaven. I luxuriated in its beautiful simplicity. I tried to reach for the cup. Nothing. I asked Jane why I still couldn't move. She said, They use many drugs in open-heart surgery. They have to make sure you can't move when they operate. Even automatic reflexes like breathing are stopped. You aren't really asleep. You are paralyzed. It's for your safety. Now, different parts of your brain are waking up at different times. Your arms and legs are still asleep. But they'll wake up. Don't worry. Jane gave me a sip of water and a big, fat dose of Dilaudid. By nine that evening, time had started again. Not full speed yet. It was still slow, like watching the Super Bowl on television. I couldn't stop thinking about my afternoon and how my sensation of time had stopped. I wondered if somehow I had stumbled onto a doorway of eternal life. I was caught in a place where past and future didn't exist because there was no flow of time. There was only the eternity of the present moment. Let me be clear. I'm not talking about seeing the approaching white light or floating above my body as some have reported during near-death experiences in a hospital. But what happened to me was real, and it seemed to border on the supernatural. As I drifted off to sleep to the sounds of my beeping monitors, I had a fleeting notion that maybe that afternoon, all that really happened was that I wrestled with the angel and won. And as a reward, I was allowed to climb on a rung of Jacob's ladder. ICU means intensive care unit. The people who are staying in here have a very tentative grasp of this world. You would think the doctors and nurses who run this place would want their patients to get a good night's sleep. That doesn't happen. It is impossible to sleep in the ICU. Besides all of the racket the monitors that you're hooked up to make, there are people dying all around you all the time. That means code blue, which means alarms and people running down the hallways. It's not conducive to sleep. Even if you have a quiet moment, every hour someone dressed up like hospital personnel will come in and take blood from you. It's never the same person. I don't know who they are. I don't know where they go, but they always need blood. And the blood they took 20 minutes ago doesn't count anymore. I wanted to laugh when Jane told me I was anemic. No kidding. I just couldn't move my jaw yet. I managed to pass out around midnight. I had another time travel experience. This one was positive. I felt like I had a very long, restful sleep with pleasant dreams, and then they woke me up to tell me they needed to take more blood. 
I looked at the clock and only a few minutes had passed. I was catching up with myself. About 3 a.m., Jane walked in with a very big male nurse. She said, Mr. Hughes, I have to wash you. I didn't grasp the significance of her announcement. She pulled back my covers and pressed the controls that lowered the top half of my bed. As the bed lowered, I felt the broken bones in my chest with every moving millimeter. I screamed. Jane came up beside me and helped me. She said, I know, Mr. Hughes, I know. While the male nurse held me steady, Jane scrubbed me. She washed the bottoms of my feet. She washed my legs. She washed my balls. She washed my arms. She cleaned my incision. As I cried, the male nurse held me tight as she kept whispering, I know, Mr. Hughes, I know. It hurts. It hurts. It'll be over soon. I didn't have the strength to cry anymore. I was exhausted. Jane whispered in my ear, All done. Now I'll get you into a clean, warm gown. She dressed me. She changed my sheets and pillows. She propped up my feet and head again. She covered me and brought me a cup of water. She held it to my mouth and said, Drink, Mr. Hughes. Drink, and you'll feel better. And I did. I felt so good after she finished. The weight of my blanket was perfect. The cool, clean sheets were a balm. I slept so hard, so peacefully. Jane kept the vampires away from me till dawn. She came in and gave me more pain medicine, and my hand moved. I took a cup of water, and she helped me drink it. And she laughed and said, You see, Mr. Hughes, you are moving again. I laughed with her. She said, I have to go now. You'll have another nurse, but I will come to see you later when you're in the cardio ward. But I tell you, Mr. Hughes, you will do well. I can tell. I said, I bet you say that to all your patients. Jane stared at me and shook her head. No, Mr. Hughes. I don't say it unless I mean it. Remember, breathe deep. Jane left. I found out sometime later that the ICU was undermanned that night. I had no nurse. They called Jane at home and asked her if she could come in, which she did at the last minute. She used to be the head of all the nurses at the hospital. She was the chief instructor and was considered to be something of a legend. She was retired except when they needed her for emergencies, like tonight. A word on nurses. I'm not one of those people that has a knee-jerk response that all nurses are saintly, or good, or even competent. Like any other profession, they're all types. Nursing is incredibly difficult, because so much of it resolves around tending to the animal side of the human being feeding, washing, medicating, going to the bathroom, and dying. It's an easy environment to grow callous in. It's an easy environment to want to escape from. It's easy to begin to treat your patients as if they're things and not creatures with souls. Jane was the best of the best. She dealt with me with compassion and with humor. She was brutal and tireless, but with one goal in mind, my recovery. I only knew her for those 12 hours, but I will never forget her. She always saw the human side of the patient. The next morning, a young nurse came in. She was also Asian. She was very chipper, spoke with a heavy accent. Good morning, Mr. Huge. You order a kosher meal? Uh, yes, yes, I did. 
I will tell them to bring, okay? Yes, yes, that's okay. Tell me, Mr. Huge, you Jewish? Uh, yes, I am. Would you like to see a rabbi? I thought about it for a moment, and then I remembered Hillel's words coming to mind, if not now, when, and I said, sure, that's a good idea. I should talk to a rabbi. That would be nice. Good. I put you down. The nurse left as Anne was escorted into the room. She smiled and came to my bedside. She put her hand on my head and asked, How are you doing? I said, I think I just took a turn for the worst. I just became Mr. Huge. Anne started laughing. You're kidding. No, no, I'm not. The nurse thinks my name is Mr. Huge. They're calling me by my porno name. Anne came over to my bedside and said, Is it safe to kiss you? I don't want to hurt anything. I said, Even if you did hurt me, what better place could I be in than an ICU? Come on, do your worst. I think the top of my head is safe. Give me a kiss and see if you can make these alarms go off. Anne kissed me as the young Asian nurse came in again. Oh, excuse me, Mr. Huge. I want to tell you breakfast is coming and Rabbi will be by later. Anne started laughing mid-kiss. I thanked the girl. She left. My nurse for the day came in. Her name was Ariel. I asked her if she was named after the fairy in Shakespeare's The Tempest. She paused for a moment and said, Yes, as a matter of fact, and thank you. Everybody thinks I was named after The Little Mermaid. I said, well, it's one of the few tangible benefits of getting a BFA. Ariel said, you have a pretty unusual name. What does the HM stand for? I said, Stephen. It stands for Stephen. You could call me Stephen. Ariel smiled. Stephen it is. So, Ariel, what happens today? She said, today is a very big day. I'm going to get you to eat. I'm going to get you to walk if I can. And I'm going to get you out of here. Get you over to the cardio ward where you get a little peace and quiet and start to get better. I said, sounds like a big day. A day I'll never forget. It will be, said Ariel. And I have two rules. One, you have to do everything I say. And two, when you get well, I never want to see you again. Except to say hi, of course. I said, that sounds agreeable. Well then, she said, let's get started. Let's go for a walk. Anne and Ariel helped me out of bed, and they loaded up the walker with my oxygen tank, my catheter bottle, and a pump that was running nonstop to drain the fluid from my lungs. I looked like I was pushing a John Deere lawnmaster. I took a little step forward. I couldn't believe how weak I was. We started around the 100-foot loop around the hallway of the ICU. I said to Anne, Yesterday was unbelievable. I'll tell you about it later. Anne was concerned. Did something bad happen? I said, I don't know. It was unbelievable. Time stopped. I was moving forward, but everything stood still. The only way I thought I could live was if I could find a lesson in it. But so far, I got nothing. Anne looked up at me and said, Maybe it'll come. It's still early. Ariel guided me down the hallway. One foot after the other, Mr. Hughes. That's how we start. Oh, my mama told me Cause she said she learned the hard way Say she wanna spare the children 
She say don't give a say your soul away Cause all that you have is your soul that was The Return of Mr. Huge, a series of stories told by actor Stephen Tobolowsky, and you're listening to The Tobolowsky Files. Uh, I just want to point out that if you'd like to follow news about our upcoming live shows, go to facebook.com slash Stephen Tobolowsky. That's going to bring us to the end of this week's episode. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you guys later. Adios. I was... Pretty young girl once I had dreams, I had high hopes Married a man who stole my heart away Gave his love, but what a high price I paid And all that you have is your soul Don't be tempted by the shiny apple Don't you eat of a better food Hunger only for a taste of justice Hunger only for a